for that looking outside right now does not seem to be seriously precipitating in any kind of way. Uh, but there's still this uh, forecast here that has a winter storm warning in effect until midnight tonight. Total snow accumulation, four to eight inches. Snow and sleet expected this evening and uh, tomorrow to be partly sunny with high around 50. Partly cloudy tomorrow evening and becoming mostly cloudy through the overnight with lows in the low 30s. Snow and rain uh, likely on Wednesday Light accumulation, it says, for that on Wednesday, and that continues into Wednesday night. Additional light accumulation, snow and rain, overnight lows in the low 30s. Uh, this is WJFF. After making waves, stay tuned. We will be getting into a brand-new program here on WJFF, uh, and this is the national conversation from NPR. Of course, uh, we will still hear trailer talk and TUC Radio First, that national conversation, is on at 9 tonight. Let's go for the latest news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Trump today, as it is administration's daily coronavirus briefing, said he will recommend new protocol to let communities resume activities at the appropriate time. Trump saying when the initial 15-day shutdown that has affected much of the country ends next week, the situation will be reviewed. We also have a large team working on what the next steps will be once the medical community gives a region the okay, meaning the okay to get going, to get back, let's go to work. Our country wasn't built to be shut down. Trump called on lawmakers to end an impasse over a massive relief bill to address the economic devastation brought on by the virus. Trump was joined by Attorney General William Barr, who warned against people seeking to profit from the situation at the expense of others. The president also said the Asian community in the U.S. should not be blamed for the virus. New York's governor is ordering all hospitals in the state to increase the number of open beds at their facilities by at least 50 percent. And Paris Hansi Luang reports New York State is preparing for an expected spike in coronavirus cases. In Queens, New York City Health and Hospitals Elmhurst is repurposing rooms to increase capacity, says its CEO Israel Rocha. There's things like recovery rooms, pre-anesthesia, care units, things like that that are usually used for transitional patients. There are opportunities for hospitals to be able to maximize those beds. But that won't be enough for Northwell Health Hospitals, according to their chief medical officer, Dr. David Battinelli. We are currently redeploying a number of our employees, nurses, advanced care practitioners, physicians, to work that they don't normally do, but that they're clinically capable to do. Batnelli says New York City's hospitals are counting on the temporary hospital sites the Army Corps of Engineers is planning to build. Hansi Luang, NPR News, New York. The State Department says it has been working around the clock to help Americans who are trying to return home. They've been getting thousands of calls. More from NPR's Michelle Kellerman. The State Department is advising Americans overseas to return home now unless they're ready to ride out a, quote, undetermined period of time as countries deal with the coronavirus pandemic. Commercial travel is becoming more difficult. In some cases, U.S. military planes have evacuated Americans, and the State Department is negotiating with countries to get privately chartered aircraft the permission to fly. That includes Peru, which closed its borders and its main airport. Officials say they've heard from 13,500 Americans around the world seeking help. 
Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. Rhode Island is the latest state to move its presidential primary response to the new coronavirus. Governor Gina Raimondo announcing today the state will move its April 28th primary election to June 2nd. Rhode Island joins Connecticut, Maryland, Georgia, Kentucky, Louisiana, and Ohio in postponing its April 28th primary. Stocks closed lower on Wall Street. The Dow down 582 points. This is NPR. Here is an update on the impact of COVID-19 on our listening area. Pennsylvania has shut down all but life-sustaining businesses, and the New York State on pause executive order does the same for all non-essential businesses in New York. But what is essential or non-essential? Guidelines have been issued for both New York and Pennsylvania. We don't have time here to go over all of these guidelines, but right now we're going to go over parts of the New York list to give you some idea of what they entail. So for the purposes of the New York State on pause executive order, essential businesses include essential health care like hospitals, veterinary services, elder care and home health aides for the elderly. Essential infrastructure, including utilities, fuel supply, transportation and hotels. Essential manufacturing like food processing. Essential retail, which includes groceries, pharmacies, convenience stores, farmers markets, hardware stores, and restaurants or bars, but only for takeout or delivery. Essential services is on the list, including trash and recycling collection, mail and shipping, laundry, child care, auto repair, funerary services, and animal shelters. News media is listed as essential. Financial institutions like banks, insurance, payroll, and accounting Homeless shelters and food banks, construction and skilled trades, these are all listed as essential businesses, but keep in mind, these are guidelines for New York State, and this is not the complete list. If you did not hear your type of business listed, please check the full guidelines for New York or Pennsylvania. Links to both are up at WJFFradio.org. Okay, now it's time for an archived edition of Making Ways. This is from this time last year, so there may be information in here that is out of date. Uh, but it's still good to have it, to bring it to you. And thank you to the Making Waves crew and the Kingfisher crew. This is WJFF. We're going to start right on in on Kingfisher Project. Welcome to the Kingfisher Project. The project was established here at WJFF in 2014 in memory of my daughter, Rebecca Pizal, who was shot and killed due to her drug addiction. The project is named for the injured bird Rebecca rescued and wrote about while a senior in high school before she became addicted. Her former teacher, Mr. Ogazalik, read the essay at Rebecca's memorial service. Since then, a number of people have decided they wanted to draw the attention of the opiate crisis here and across the nation. And that's how the Kingfisher Project started. Thank you very much, Julie. You're welcome. And, uh, you know, we were talking with Alexis Plus, and we're going to hear that interview in just a few minutes. And uh, she, Alexis Plus from Broome County, the Binghamton area, is the founder and and the leader of the organization called Truth Farm, P-H-A-R-M. And uh, it put me in mind of how Truth Farm has been going for about four years, just about the same exact time that the Kingfisher Project has been going. So it, so there's sort of a real sister organization to ours, and we're very uh, pleased to have Alexis Plus on the air with us tonight.
Alexis Proust, the founder of Truth Farm, is joining us tonight. And I wanted to uh, remind listeners that Alexis has been a friend of the Kingfisher Project for a long time. And uh, as a as a interview subject and also as a contributor with uh, many segments of news about the opioid epidemic and substance use disorder uh, topic. Uh, so, Alexis, uh, you know, there's been a lot going on, and I thank you so much for taking time out from your extremely busy life and leading Truth Farm up there in Broome County. But I wanted to just um, talk about a few topics that that caught our eye here down at the, at the Kingfisher, and one of them... Uh, has to do with the number of deaths that are, are happening in Broome County, which really is a county almost just next door to us. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So um, we uh, we actually saw a decline in overdose deaths last year by about 50% from what we saw in 2017. So last year in Broome County, we had um, 33 overdose deaths in total, which was half of what we had the year before. So we were all, you know, really happy about that. Of course, it's, you know, until we eliminate overdose deaths that we won't be completely satisfied, but at least we were on the decline. Um, But since the beginning of this year, um, you know, it's been about two months now, we started to see an increase in overdose deaths. um, And now it's it's gotten to like really alarming um, proportions. So we're losing at least one a week at this point, Um, sometimes two a week. Uh, We had two overdose deaths in the past week. And when I give those numbers, that's only what Truth Farm is aware of from friends and family members who notify us because they know that this is the work that we do. We suspect, you know, certainly we're not informed of every overdose death that's happening. Um, so those are just the ones that we are told about, uh, which is, you know, really alarming, but there's probably even more that, we, that we're not aware of. And do you have the impression that this is because of fentanyl? We do, um, and not, not any um, confirmed information from the coroner yet, but um, one, just because the alarming number of deaths and from, you know, a lot of people who are in active use, so, you know, typically... You know, they shouldn't be the ones overdosing. People with, like, a low tolerance, things mm. like that, you mm-hmm, might expect mm-hmm. to see. But these are people who were actively using who overdosed, uh, which is a lot of times an indicator of fentanyl. But we also had some people um, notify us. When we started to see a rise in overdose deaths a couple months ago, we put out a warning that we were seeing a surge in overdose deaths, which we are very careful about doing. We've only done that, I think, three times in three years. Um, and when we did that, a few people who were in active use notified us, like, you know, private messaged us and said, there's a lot of fentanyl coming in right now through the dark web. And, and one guy said, you know, it's only going to get worse, expect it to be like a war zone, which really chilled me at the time. Um, and now with, the, you know, the, you know, like every single week we're hearing of another one, it feels like a war zone, mm. um. Honestly, yeah. Yeah, that is that is disturbing. But but uh, yeah. on on the flip side of that, you at Truth Farm um, and and maybe in, in conjunction with others, you have been stepping up your Narcan training program. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yes, yes. So we um, 
We've been hosting um, open office hours, which we don't typically do because I'm sure you remember, no, <laughs> that we're not, we're a volunteer organization. We don't have staff. We don't really have open office hours. We um, are at our office when we need to use it, but we've been hosting periodic happy hour or happy hours, <laughs> open hours, just when um, our rainmakers, which are active volunteers, just when they're available, we'll host open office hours and let people come in and, and uh, get a training and a kit, and we've hosted community trainings. Um, we have handed out 100 kits in the past, I think, three months, so we've mm-hmm. gone through an incredible number of kits. And then our rainmakers um, do another amazing thing. We have um, we made up little training kits, these little bins with handles, um, and they have Narcan kits in them and all the materials that they need to provide a training and they'll meet anyone out in the community, and the community is aware of that. So um, I think that there's been at least uh, five or six trainings over the course of this weekend where rainmakers have just gone out and met people either at their homes or McDonald's, Dunkin' Donuts, wherever, just to provide the training so oh, that that's, they have That's it. great. How many rainmakers do you have? We have about 25. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, we have about 25 active rainmakers, which is, and, that, and I always say we always need more. <laughs> but, well, you know, you know what, yeah. what really caught my eye was that you had put a call out for gloves, you know, those plastic, yeah. kind of blue plastic gloves that, that you wear when you, well, you should be wearing when you administer Narcan, and yeah. you had gone through so many of these kits that you ran out of those. Did you solve that problem? Yeah, um, well, it's, uh, at least three people have told me that they're going to get us gloves, so um, I'm sure the problem will be solved very soon. <laughs> Our community is great with us like that. Um, well, you just, do have a you have a marvelous network from from what I can tell. Uh, yeah, you know, you know, and in the same breath as asking for the gloves, you were saying that um, people could go in, and this is something that I did not know. They could go into the pharmacy. Get one. You don't need a prescription. I, I, I guess I knew that, and I was not sure. But mm-hmm. then there was an an NCAP program that people can, uh, the pharmacy can, I guess, not charge people and go through that program. What is that about? Yeah. So, um, in my opinion, it's a good and bad thing. <laughs> like uh-huh. all things, there's pros and cons. But um, New York State has uh, recognized that it would be a lot cheaper for New York State if people were getting their the Narcan um, if they were getting that medicine on their insurance rather than through these community based programs like Truth Farm because the state provides us our kits for free. Right. So the state recognized if they could get people to go to the pharmacy and bill the people's insurance, then the state would be paying a lot less even if they paid their copay. So the state developed this program called NCAP, and it's like the letter N and then dash CAP. Um, and people can go into the pharmacy and just say, I can't afford my copay or I don't want to pay my copay, and the pharmacy will bill New York State for that copay. And so for the state, it's much cheaper than paying for the whole entire kit. Um, our frustration is a community-based organization that's providing the training in the communities is when you go to the pharmacy and get that kit, they don't provide you a breathing mask to provide rescue breaths to the person. They don't provide you the gloves. They don't provide you a training. <laughs> so they don't, like, really prepare people um, for how to save a person from an overdose. And, like, the rescue breaths are one of the most most important things in terms of saving somebody from an overdose. 
none of that training is provided. So, you know, though I, we think it's really good that people have access to those kits, we're frustrated because then the people don't have the training that's really important. And New York State has never provided funding to any of the programs for the training. Mm. Well, that is so that is we, a good point. And, and you know, I, mm-hmm. I concur with you. It, it's a good and a bad thing because... With the fentanyl out there, and I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I understand that you might need to use four or five uh, yeah. you know, doses of Narcan and and um, or more. Some I've heard of more uh, yeah. in one incident, you know, to bring the person around because it's so powerful and deadly. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And in, in preparing people to understand all of those complexities. Um, is what we do in the training. And then, you know, like you've had a loved one who's addicted. I have two. I know family members who have had to save their loved one from an overdose. It's such a panic-stricken moment that, like, anything you can do to prepare a family for what it's going to look like, what it's going to feel like, what you're going to do in that situation is really important. And so, you know, New York State kind of pushing this off in the direction of just handing people a kit from a pharmacy. Um, You know, like I said, I think it's good and bad. I think it's good maybe for a second kit or a replacement kit Mm. um, or to have multiple kits, but I think it's never going to replace the training. And really, New York State should be upping the support of the community programs that provide the training rather than pushing people away from well, those. Well, it's, it's so, you know, you're so, you're so on the money with that because not only do you get the training, but then you are interfacing with somebody that you could come to for other information right. and support as well. And that's, that yeah. sometimes that's just the door you need to go in, uh, yep. in, in order to make that connection to a program that could give you other, other knowledge and other support as well. So, so yeah. yeah, I can see exactly what you're saying with that. Even though it does sound like a good thing, and in many ways, I'm sure it is. Um, there right, is there right. is a downside. So yeah, so interesting. I, I'll tell you a really amazing story um, related to to exactly what you were just saying. So last year at our annual memorial walk, um, we set up we bought a tent that has walls so that we can provide Narcan training in it in privacy at events. So we set, and we call it our revival tent, <laughs> which I love. So we set up the revival tent, and we were providing um, overdose trainings at the walk. And a young lady came and got a training there. Um, a couple months later, that kit was in her purse. She used with a girlfriend. They both overdosed, and someone else saved them both with that kit that was in her purse. Wow. And then she knew us from the training and knew us to be non-judgmental and caring. And she came to us and asked us for help in finding treatment mm. after, she, you know, after she was revived. Wow. She's now in recovery. She's replaced her kit. Like, it's just, you know, those are the kind of, like, exactly what you were saying. Those are the types of human connections that you get to make when you provide the training with a community where you know, and you're not going to get that at the pharmacy. Like they're not going to go to the pharmacy for help when they need it. Like, right. Well, so it's also it's also a a story of the second chance because there's so many. Yeah. Um, I'll say it's ignorance out there that says let's not revive these people because they're. I guess the idea is that they are not worth reviving and they're doing this to themselves. But here's a person who, who could be dead and isn't and has and has now made so much progress um, as a person in recovery. So that's. That's a, yep. that is an amazing story. Uh, yeah. So so th- and another topic that's that's um, 
that's distressing is um, something you've been very much on the forefront is of the is the death of a man at the Broome County Jail, and I think his name was Robert Card. Yeah, uh, yes. And the reason I think you know that this is connected to our topic um, and and to your work is that he was a person who had been addicted, I believe, and he was actually I I just read this today that he had been in drug court and he missed his drug court session and it was the only reason he was in jail. Can you tell me what's happening with that now? Yeah. So um, you know what's happening right now in terms of what our uh, public officials' response is pretty much nothing. Um, so that's unfortunate. We do have one public official who they asked us to remain not named at this point. They are kind of pushing the issue and looking into it, so we're hoping um, that something might come of that. But all, our work will continue to, to raise the issue and put pressure on our uh, public officials. So the details are uh, he was a man who suffered from substance use disorder he had a misdemeanor charge last year, small possession drug charge last year, which is what put him in drug court and on probation. Um, it's it's just so remarkable. Like to me, the more I do this work, the more frustrated I feel that people get caught up in this system for small possession drug charges. But so, anyways, he was in drug court. He. Um, during this time, so this was about 10 months' time, he ended up being diagnosed with a brain tumor. So then he's under the care of, uh, you know, medical providers, and they're looking into try to figuring out, like, you know, the extent of the tumor and what can be done. And he was scheduled to have um, a biopsy done. He missed drug, uh, drug court appointments, I guess a couple of drug court appointments. Um, so they sanctioned him. <laughs> Which means they just uh, put out a warrant for his arrest and had him arrested and taken to the Broome County Jail. Yes. So um, in less than 13 days, in our, our county jail, but really most county jails uh, have horrific medical treatment. Ours um, is notorious for really being terrible. Um, he was on an anti-seizure medication because the tumor was causing seizures. The jail never gave him his anti-seizure medication. Um, so while he was there, his uh, health was declining rapidly. He was talking to his family and friends every single day from the jail and saying, they're killing me, they're killing mm-hmm. me. Um, he was becoming paralyzed on one side of his body. He couldn't trust himself. Um, even became incontinent, like, you know, he and, and the jail was still doing nothing. So he ended up finally going to the medical unit um, on a Friday and Sunday, he left the jail on a stretcher, lifeless. Uh, they got to the hospital. The hospital did some studies and said that, you know, there was almost no brain activity whatsoever. So the jail never provided him medical care and never sought outside medical care until he was, it was too late, like he was too far he gone. He essentially dead, yeah. Yep, yep, yeah. Well, it's I think really that that's outrageous. a... The reason I think that that is uh, is a story that is so applicable, and, and you said it that in so many, especially jails. Not I'm going to say prisons might be better, yeah. but jails uh, that are usually overseen by the counties uh, don't have uh, the resources, maybe, or just don't have the will to provide the uh, medical treatment that is necessary to, especially since so many of these inmates are are in. Uh, 
or trying to be in recovery at least or should be in recovery and are right, have, right. have been they either come in there as active users and then they're suddenly cut off and they're in withdrawal and then they are, don't have the proper medication for that but there's so that's a bit a very big area i think for uh area for improvement i'll say and and here's yeah. and here's a case where somebody uh didn't have that kind of a treatment and nor did they have the other medical attention they needed for the other condition they have so it's a it's an ongoing issue for so many uh county jails i would say yes yes absolutely so yep. it's good to it's hear really that heartbreaking it's good to hear that there is somebody um you know the this anonymous person who's working in the scenes there so so that's a good thing and and in terms of good news i see that that through your efforts and those, and so many others that the Sackler family who is uh, so behind yeah. the the uh, big the big pharma uh production of these opioids that have taken the lives of so many and have ruined the lives of so many others uh that that uh art institutions such as the Guggenheim and I think the Tate and I saw some others mentioned are are deciding not to take those donations from this tremendously wealthy but also tremendously responsible for the ep- epidemic family and you were was was that um just this past month that you were at the Guggenheim for the protest Yeah I think it was about 1 month ago maybe maybe 5 or 6 weeks but yeah it was not very long ago <laughs> and um yeah, we're we're really grateful. We never um, expected a response or an action um, this fast. Uh, you know, I never expected a response from the museum this quickly after the action. Like we really expected, we'd have to do that type of pressure again. Well, it was um, it was a very you know it was very moving to read that as well. That here's the Guggenheim in New York, one of the legendary art institutions in our nation and in the world really uh and you were there with it looked like hundreds of other people for this protest and then to get this result only uh four or five weeks later in which they the guggenheim as an institution said they would no longer take these donations yes it really like it really um hearing you repeat it to me (laughs) me chills all over again um it was, and it was a beautiful, moving um, experience to participate in the in the action that we did in the Guggenheim, um, and we're so grateful to have this change. You know, we just feel like the Sacklers shouldn't have the opportunity to spend their wealth um, making themselves look like great philanthropists in the community <laughs> when they're responsible for a nationwide epidemic, and they and they have not contributed significantly towards that what is what is the uh, status of there's a legal action against them or is that concluded it's not it's just um it's really just starting so um the district attorney of um i believe it's massachusetts why is my brain is going blank either connecticut or massachusetts but the district district attorney of that state is the first one who's ever filed a criminal action against the sacklers as individuals um, it, for participating, because what she discovered is that the Sacklers actually communicated directly um, about the issue and communicated directly in trying to cover up the fact that OxyContin was addictive. And then worse, once there was an epidemic already started, they even hired a marketing firm, and um, one of the Sacklers, Richard Sackler, in an email said something like, 
you know, what we need to do is have this marketing firm drown out the emotional appeal of parents who've lost their children. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's absolutely chilling, disgusting, horrific, um, what these people have done all in the name of making money um, and profits. They've raked in billions of dollars, like billions of dollars, you know, just based on killing our kids. And, and this action was to say, you know, we're not going to allow them to pump their name up in the community to look like amazing people when they're not, you know, they're not. And, and once again, for the listeners, I mean, the Sackler family is the family behind, I think, more than one drug company uh, in which it was known that the that the drugs were addictive. But that was uh, that was not that was not told that, right, that, that right. was kept under wraps. And even as right. more and more people became addicted and more and more died, uh, yeah. this this uh, deception was was carried on. That's the essence of the of the actions, civil and criminal now against the family. Yep. Yep, that's right. Yep. And and worse than not told, like they literally purposefully covered it up. Um, they knew it was addictive and they purposefully covered that up. Um, well, well that so. well that um that piece of information you just gave about them hiring a marketing firm to drown out, so to speak, the the grief of uh parents and family members who had had lost loved ones is chilling just in and of itself. Mhm. For sure. For sure. Well, you have been one busy person, Alexis. <laughs> and um, how long ago was it that you founded Truth Farm? Uh, so we just had our fourth, um, you know, anniversary. I call it from the from the first thing I ever did. Like, I got the notification um, February first, I think, that um, I had created my Twitter account four years ago. <laughs> so that that would be the anniversary I had. Um, I had decided on a couple different name options for Truth Farm, and I looked to see which one was available for, like, a domain name, Facebook, uh, Instagram, and Twitter. And Truth Farm won because I was able to get all of those. (laughs) So that was um, February 1st, but it was the fourth uh, anniversary of that. I'm sure it seems like a long time sometimes. It does. Yeah, sometimes it seems like a long time. Sometimes it seems like yesterday funny time is time is weird now i'm sure you agree <laughs> yes yes it is and um do you feel like you've accomplished a lot um i do but like i'm i'm really bad at um i'm really bad at focusing on the positive so like so it's nice sometimes when people remind me of um you know change that has made and positive things that have happened and I, I was thinking the other day like I really need to like maybe start like a chart at our office like listing the things because you know you do something good but then you're still like stuck dealing with such horrific things and it always everything feels like an emergency so um you know I get really entrenched in the work and I'm just really focusing all the time on fixing the next problem and even if we fix one, I'm just moving on to the next thing. So I too, I personally tend to too quickly forget things that we've accomplished. Um, but now, like, we're starting to work in a neighboring county, Shenango County, and, and the stigma is so horrific there. 
And as we're doing that work, the community members, which makes me want to cry to say this out loud, but the community members keep saying, we need you to do here what you did in Broome County. We need you to, to take the stigma away. We need you to create the conversation. So, like, even that tells me, like, from an outsider's perspective, we've made change. Um, and sometimes I guess I'm in the middle of it, so it's harder for me to see. But I well, think we have accomplished a lot. Well, speaking of the outsider perspective, um, we here, the Kingfisher Project, want to congratulate you on being named a woman of achievement. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and, and that's, um, and that's gonna, I know you're getting your award at a luncheon next week, and we wanted to yeah. just recognize that and say that those, this yeah. organization that has chosen you for this also recognizes uh, your accomplishments. What, what organization is giving you that award? It's um, it's a bunch of women's organizations in Broome County. So to me, that makes it even more special that it's not one organization. It's um, a conglomerate of women's organizations in Broome County. So um, it's I guess there's like a, a women's business association. Um, there's the Democratic Women of Broome County and in several other women's groups, and they um, chose. So it makes it even more special. Well, once again, thank you for speaking with us uh, uh, for this to. episode of the Kingfisher Project, and congratulations on that and everything else that you've been able to accomplish. And thank we'll, you so we'll much. make a note to ourselves that we won't wait for so long until we speak to you again. Alexis Plus, yeah. the founder of Truth Farm, that's T R U T H P H A R M. And uh, thanks again, Alexis. Thank you very much. Talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. Bye bye. Bye bye. And now we'll take a few minutes to speak with, to speak about the Sullivan County version of the Fresh Air Fund, the longtime program where kids from the city are hosted by families in the country for the summer. Kevin Greff will be talking with the Fresh Air Fund organizers. Hello, Lisa. Um, Hi, Kevin. How are you? Uh, Lisa, you're the Sullivan County co-chair of the Fresh Air Fund. Um, that is correct. Can you tell us a little bit about the program? The short story is that the Fresh Air Fund started more than 140 years ago in rural Pennsylvania, and a pastor recognized that New York City kids were living in conditions where they didn't really get fresh air, 
and he turned to his parishioners and asked if they would host New York City kids to get them some relief from some of the the uh, issues and infectious diseases like tuberculosis that were happening in the crowded conditions in New York City. And since then, the organization has hosted almost 2 million kids for week-long vacations in places as far north as Canada and as far south as North Carolina. And I'm thrilled to be able to participate in Sullivan County and to help other families learn about it. And how many, how many children... Um are serviced by the Fresh Air Fund. So it's a, each summer it's several thousand. Um, I've heard the number as much as four and five thousand, and maybe a little bit lower depending on, you know, each year there are variables. But thousands of kids each summer have an experience of being hosted by a family other than their own in a community setting other than an urban setting, which could be suburban, it could be rural, it could be you know, like I said, up and down the East Coast. So it really uh, is a terrific program for having a cultural exchange with kids who, you know, would not normally get to see that kind of an environment and families who may not really know what kids' lives in the city are like. And, um, Elisa, you were a host, right, uh, For uh, when you first started. How long ago was that? And... And how was that experience for you the, the first time around? It was nerve-wracking and exciting. Um, and it was about three years ago, so almost four summers ago now. This summer will be the fourth year that we host a f- now 14-year-old girl named Paige. And our concern, um, first of all, we really were excited about it because we knew about the program for a long time and we supported it. And in our ability to have a home in Sullivan County, we realized that we could now host a child. But my husband and I don't have kids, so families come in all different you know, descriptions. It's not a traditional one way of being a family. And we were worried that having a child stay with us for a week would result in a poor child, to be perfectly honest. And so what the process is that you fill out an application that takes into account your family setting, your activities, your hobbies, what you like to do, your lifestyle, and they try to match you with a child who's, you know, kind of appropriate for that. So we got really lucky and we had a child who really likes to be around adults and is not um, connected to her cell phone or to a computer or, you know, device, really is open to new activities and new meeting new people all the time. So for us, it was just a really lovely experience, and it has continued to be, and we are very much looking forward to having Paige come back. And, and it also represents kind of a long-term relationship that, you know, we hope just goes on way beyond this program okay now at, there there must have been times when things don't work out with the the host family and the child um has that occurred and, and what how is that resolved yeah that's a really fair question and it surely does happen sometimes the child really has a hard time adjusting being away from their own families I and mean, if you imagine being between seven and 12 years old and getting on a charter bus with children you've never met before and going to visit family for a week, which is an eternity for a little child that you've never met before, certainly for the first time, it really could be nerve-wracking. And um, the Fresh Air Fund has a terrific system of support set up. They're available 24 hours 7, and the co-chairs or community volunteers, which is what I am, and uh, my co-chair's name is Vicki Siciliano, 
in Sullivan County, we're available. So we check in with the families. We can provide support. We can provide guidance. And sometimes the decision is that the visit needs to be cut short. But I think it's important for listeners to know, first of all, if this sounds appealing to you to do this kind of a host situation, please contact us and, and let's talk about it. And if you're concerned about what happens if it doesn't work out, let's talk about that too before you make a decision not to try. Because even a short visit is a good experience in the end for a child who's never had that opportunity to be away from home. And they will get something out of it, and, and your family will as well. But all families, you know, have ups and downs, and so this shouldn't be seen as anything different. Okay. And how, how does one get in touch with you to volunteer? Or? To Well, so first let's start with an inquiry and let us know that you're interested. We'd love to hear from listeners. And our area started out as Sullivan County, but we now also are working with families in Wayne County and a little bit down into Pike County. So if your listening area, you know, reaches, as I know it does, some of those communities, please let us hear from you. And you can call 845-985-2976 and talk to Vicki Siciliano, leave her a message or talk to her first, and then we'll coordinate how we get back in touch with you. Or listeners can go to freshair.org fresh air just as it sounds dot org and there's a host page so you can look that up fill out uh, an inquiry and one of us will be back in touch with you to talk in more depth and get the process in uh get the paperwork going get the process going okay well lisa thank you so much for telling us about the fresh air fund and um we appreciate you joining us Thank you, Kevin. I really appreciate it, too. WJFF has been a terrific supporter of this program, and we really hope that we hear from more families in the area. It's a great week-long activity for any family to participate in, as long as you have an extra room and space in your family and your heart to have a child come visit. Thank you so much, and and have a good night. You too, Kevin. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, that was terrific hearing about the Fresh Air Fund, a wonderful program for young people. And speaking of young people, we have Midge Maroney in the studio with us, one of our producers here at Making Waves. And she was speaking with Senator Jen Metzger of the New York State Senate earlier today about the Youth Leadership Recognition Awards. Um, Midge, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Okay, so this is a program, and the contact information is Metzger, M-E-T-Z-G-E-R dot nysenate.gov. And here's the information. If you know a successful student, a sophomore or junior, 
Um, you can uh, get them to apply for the uh, Senate Youth Leadership Recognition Award program. And uh, it's for their achievements, if they're excellent in academics, athletics, arts, and community service, uh, and if they benefit the community. So you can nominate a deserving student. The deadline is April 5th, um, so it's a couple weeks away. Uh, you can send it electronically. And again, the deadline, April 5th, for the Youth Leadership Recognition Award, that's Metzger, M-E-T-Z-G-E-R dot N-Y Senate dot gov. So nominate a freshman, I mean, nominate a junior or senior to the program. Okay? And Yes, it's on the senator's website. And in addition, as you said, we're going to be talking to Senator Metzger in the next uh, couple of weeks or so. The topics include uh, the new changes in the voting law as well as campaign finance reform. So we'll keep everybody posted and we'll let you know when she's going to be here. And coming up next here on Making Ways, we're going to be closing the program with an interview with art historian Vivian Freed. Uh, Midge Maroney is here to conduct that interview about uh, Vivian's newly released book called Against Our Will that examines sexual violence as a topic in the work of a variety of artists. Uh, thank you for being with us here, Midge, and we'll thank, uh, we'll thank our author as well. And um, when when uh, Vivian Freed comes on, uh, as we said, she is a professor of art history at Vanderbilt University. Uh, some of her previously published uh, works include um, Art and the Crisis of Marriage, Edward Hopper and Georgia O'Keeffe. So both of those uh, well-known American artists uh, apparently had some challenges doing their art and keeping their marriages going. So... Um, Vivian Freed will be on the air with us in a minute. Um, her new release, which just came out, is called Against Our Will. And you may recognize uh, that title. It's an allusion and a homage to Susan Brown Miller's uh, 1975 book uh, that was subtitled Men, Women, and Rape. And uh, that very important uh, feminist book um, was very controversial in its time. Some of you may remember that. Uh, if you're of a certain age, such as I. And uh, the book argues that rape is, and this is a quotation, a conscious process of intimidation by which all men uh, keep all women in a state of fear. And the book really was credited uh, for changing the public attitudes about rape and the very controversial when it first happened. So uh, we're ready to bring Vivian uh, online with us. Vivian, welcome to WJFF, Making Waves. Can you hear me okay? Yes, I can. Hello, Mitch. Nice to talk with you. Okay, it's great that you're here. So I just introduced you to talk a little bit about um, the title of the book. So tell us a little bit about how this project began. You've published other uh, art history books. You are an art historian. And tell us how this book began. This book began really with my teaching classes on American art since 1945. I, uh, focus, I focus on feminist art in the 1970s and have shown videos by Suzanne Lacey, who did uh, one particular video in 1977 in Mourning and Enrage, 
which was in response to the Hillside Strangler in Los Angeles. I became fascinated with her and decided to go meet her in Oakland, California and do research going through her archives. Then shortly after that, I heard about an exhibition that the renowned feminist artist Judy Chicago was going to do with her husband Donald Woodman at Western Kentucky University. She and her husband facilitated a course with male and female students, and the students created installations in the house. I went to see the exhibition for uh, a lecture that I would give in my class, but there were three rooms that I thought, oh, I really want to look at these some more. One is the rape, called The Rape Garage, the other is called Nightmare Nursery, which is about incest, and the third was The Domestic Abuse Closet. So it was really teaching my classes, seeing these works of art, meeting the artists, that led me to write this book. Well, I think it's a really important book, not only for um, uh, the art history of it, but the fact that its timing is so perfect for today with the Me Too movement. Yes, when I, I started this book about 16 years ago. And in all honesty, when I started the book, I had no idea that it would be, unfortunately, so timely. And in fact, the book was rejected by a press actually twice, which prolonged the publication. And in many ways, it turned out to be a better book because I incorporated material that I hadn't originally. And as you said, it is unfortunately a timely topic. Indeed. And um, in your introduction, you talk about the goal that was to give voice to the voiceless and to make uh, sexual trauma known and knowable. Um, yes. I'd like you to go back a little bit because I want to talk a little bit about the introduction and the concept of heroic rape uh, and the tradition of Western art uh, because uh, you note that it's lasted from the Renaissance, maybe even earlier than that, uh, to okay. 20th century. So yes. just to give the listeners an idea, I'd like you to list some of the old masters and the painters and sculptors yes. Uh, yes. of, that we're talking about with this great history of heroic rape. Yes, yes. So your listeners may know uh, Titian's Rape of Europa, David's Rape of the Sabine Women, 19th century neoclassical artist, but in the 17th century, Poussin, the French artist, had also done a painting of the Rape of Sa the Sabine Women. Correggio has a painting of Io. Gentileschi has had created a number of paintings with Judith and Holofernes. This tradition is one in which I'll use Titian as an example. The, the artists are usually representing mythological, biblical, or historical subjects. So the Rape of Europa is an ancient Greek myth when Zeus turned himself into a bull captured Europa, took her to the island of Crete, and there uh, they had three children together. The title of the painting tells us, however, the way in which the children were, were born is because of a rape. The painting, however, is a beautiful painting in which you can see a white bull with a writhing nude woman on his back 
flying in the clouds against this gorgeous blue landscape. And in our history, we usually talked about it being typical for Venetian Renaissance. We would talk about the mythological subject. We would talk about the dynamic composition and rich colors. But nobody ever asked the question, what does it mean that this painting is representing a rape? That question was not raised until feminist art historians and artists in the 1980s. I think that's really important to talk about because um, how or why the critics and the scholars uh, praised uh, art that was depicting sexual violence as grand, yes. As, yes. as magnificent, right, uh, right, and, right. And, and so it seems that they were looking at technique without yes. looking at the subject matter. Is that a fair? That's, that's very. That's definitely the case. They were looking at the stylistic and compositional characteristics rather than the subject matter. But they were looking at the subject matter in terms of, oh, it's the rape of Europa when Zeus turned himself into a bull and took her to Crete. But what was never discussed is, if this is a rape scene, why is she seems to be writhing on the bull as if she's awaiting this with pleasure? So it's it's very very disturbing indeed. And and that brings us into the nineteenth and twentieth and twenty first century, when uh, the argument uh, that you would hear even in trial testimony, well I knew that she wanted yes. it. Well why was she wearing that right. sexy dress? Right. And right. you know right. come on I mean absolutely yes. The artists I discuss in my book, especially those who create works in the nineteen seventy. I mentioned Suzanne Lacey, and she collaborated often with Leslie Labowitz and others. They created about eight performances in L.A., and not only did they want to end the silence, but they also were advocating changes in the legal system so that the performance I mentioned in Morning and in Rage, that was held in front of the L.A. courthouse, and they invited people, politicians, to be present, as well as the media at that time, television and TV, and they were savvy in terms of realizing that they were taking a political action through their art, and they wanted it to be noticed and to make a difference, so they invited politicians and the media to be present. Right, and I, and I want the I want the listener to know that um, the the book that you have uh, written and it's 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 amazing for all the content. And by the way, uh, the reader should know you have almost a hundred illustrations. So yes. you you discuss them, and then the um, the reader can then uh, look uh, look and view them. And so, as you said, you start with uh, Suzanne Lacey and Leslie Labowitz. And then you go into the anti-incest cycle, um, which was 19, in the late 70s, early 80s. And then you do have a chapter on Faith uh, Ringgold. Um, later you talk about the, uh, the next chapter, recirculating the anti-rape and anti-incest cycle. Uh, you have a chapter with Judy Chicago, and I think uh, a lot of us uh, in this neck of the woods actually traveled to Brooklyn to see that some years ago. Um, yes. 
and uh, Kara Walker, and that was creating the third wave, anti-rape, anti-incest. And then the last chapter is the mapping and chronicling the anti-rape in the 21st century. Now, um, there was one artist that you mentioned uh, when we were talking, and I'd like you to tell the listener a little bit about her, which was a performance art. And you talked, uh, uh, you told me about Emma Solkowitz. Yes. Could you tell the uh, the listeners a little bit about that? Yeah. So you're, since you're in the New York area, you or you're in the state of New York, but not far from New York City. Well, only I'm sure miles. your readers <laughs> had read in the New York Times Magazine an article about the so-called mattress girl. Emma Sulkowitz was a senior at Columbia University who created a year-long performance as her senior thesis in response to the fact that during her sophomore year, she alleged that a fellow male student had raped her. Columbia University decided that the male student was innocent Emma Sulkowitz created this performance in order to make clear that she didn't feel comfortable with this decision. And she, like the artists in the 1970s, were making a political statement and ending the silence. She consequently carried her mattress from the dorm room to all of her classes and even her graduation. And what's fascinating about this is not only she got attention by way of the press, but also other students at Columbia University joined her, and they too began to carry mattresses. They had protests about this issue on their college campus. And then because of social media, students at other women, mostly female students at other universities, also began to carry the mattress so that it escalated and went beyond just MSLs. That's an amazing, uh, an amazing bit of performance art, and I don't mean to demean it by saying a bit, but it's it's just pretty powerful. And and yes. what I was struck by is that just very recently in the news, and, and and your book is so timely, but recently in the news, uh, Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos yes. uh, devised yes. or changed um, procedure um, yes. that uh, the uh, the accused now have. Um, right. Uh, more rights or there's more of a focus to be sympathetic to the accuser? I mean, what century are we in? Well, that's very, very upsetting. In fact, Columbia University not too long ago uh, looked into the the case with Emma Sulkowitz and they concluded that they had treated the male student unfairly and settled with him, which you've got two instances in which We've moved back to before the 1970s. It is in the 1970s that Susan Brownmiller and the artists I discuss in my book began the rape crisis movement. They took a taboo subject and made it front and center in the art world, but also within American culture. It's something that continued into the present. The Me Too movement is just a continuation of this. And I will uh, thank Midge Maroney for being with us in the studio today, and also I will thank uh, Vivian Freed for granting us that interview. 
Thank you for tuning in to Making Waves on your hydro-powered, volunteer-powered public radio station, Radio Catskill WJFF. Please join us every Monday night at 7 p.m. here at 90.5 FM, 94.5 FM in Monticello, and streaming online at wjffradio.org. COVID-19 has changed daily life in the U.S., and with news breaking by the hour, it can be hard to stay up to date. I'm Ari Shapiro. Join us every weekday for a new live conversation about the disease, what you need to know, what's coming next, and we'll answer your questions. The National Conversation with All Things Considered from NPR News. And that'll be coming up tonight at 9 o'clock here on WJFF. This is your community radio station, and uh, we are getting ready to go into our next program. But first, we're going to try to get some headlines as well as remind you uh, what the weather's doing. It's dark outside right now, so I can't see what it's doing right now. But there is a winter storm warning in effect until midnight tonight. We expect about four to six inches of snow.